Well, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. My name is Ryan. I'm one of our pastors here, and it's just such a joy to have you with us. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. I've had the surprise blessing this year of getting to help out with uh, my youngest son's baseball team, and I've served as a, an assistant coach on that team. And I just, I love being around baseball and my boys and just being a part of the team. And uh, during a game Monday night, I heard one of the boys in the dugout singing, one, two, buckle my shoe, three, four, shut the door. And it caught my attention because the night before, my boys had been telling us at our dinner table about how this nursery rhyme was just taking off and going crazy because of a TikTok video that a kid had made about his shoes. As of this week, there were 454 million views of this video, and I'm asking you to be honest, raise your hand if you've seen it. All right, just a few of you, okay, <laughs> wonderful. I did under the banner of research, so. But it turns out that all across elementary and junior high campuses, kids are walking around drinking Prime and then storing the bottles in their rooms, drinking Prime and singing this nursery rhyme, one, two, buckle my shoe. Which begs the question, how in the world did that happen? <laughs> how do these things happen? How do things go viral? And after the pandemic, should we maybe choose a different term? I don't know. But how do things spread like crazy? I mean, the internet has helped with that. But before Al Gore invented the internet, things were still going viral. I mean, things were still taking off. In fact, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book in 2002 entitled The Tipping Point, subtitle How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference, where he tracked through research how little things just took off and exploded. And what he found was that in order for something that's small to get really big, you need to have three kinds of people involved. You need to have connectors, people that connect people with other people. You need to have mavens, which was his term for people that carry knowledge. And then you have to have salesmen who are out there on the front lines making it happen and quote unquote closing deals <laughs> which made me wonder how did this thing go viral like not a manual faith but but how did how did the Jesus movement go viral like, like how did the gospel that began in this corner of the globe start to spread and now have uh, roughly 2 billion self-professed Christians over the face of the planet. There's this video that documents some of that spread, and I just want you to watch. It's in the top left is the year, but you can see the white is the spread of Christianity. It documents the way that this little mustard seed started to take root all over the globe. Where, where this itinerant homeless Jewish rabbi who never wrote a book started to be worshipped by person upon person. Did you know that in the Library of Congress, there are over 17,000 separate books devoted to Jesus? Did you know that there have been more books written in the last 30 years about Jesus than there were in the previous 19 centuries? I mean, which begs the question, how did this happen? I mean, there had to have been some masterful strategy. 
There, there had to have been like connectors and, and mavens and salesmen that were like commissioned to go and to do this, right? Like this doesn't happen on accident, does it? And it's interesting that at the very beginning of his gospel account, John wants to tell us how it started. And just think of John as a 85, 90-year-old man thinking back about the way that this Jesus movement started to spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then all around the Mediterranean. He got to see it start to spread with his own eyes. And then he takes his pen and he starts to write about the very beginning because the way it all started is the way it still spreads if you have your bible would you open with me to john chapter one john chapter one we're going to be looking at a chunk of scripture today and i really do want you to get your bible out so if you have to pull it up on an app or use the bible in front of you you can do that but i'm going to read the chunk of scripture for us today and then we're going to go back and we're going to talk about it we're going to see four encounters with jesus The first two encounters are people who are pursuing Jesus. The next two are Jesus pursuing people. And I love the way that we're going to see these two um, pursuits come together. And what we're going to see is that there's aspects of partnership between Jesus and his followers in each one of these encounters. See, what Jesus does in you, he wants to then do through you. And each time Jesus approaches somebody, it's because another person is pointing to him. It turns out the ground of the soil of our souls is often tilled by his faithful followers. I mean, look at the way that Luke recorded this. It says this in chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself, read it with me, Emmanuel Faith, was about to go. I love this. Jesus sends people as forerunners to prepare the way. Does it sound familiar? The places that he is about to go. So let me just call a timeout. Maybe, just maybe, you're at your workplace for this reason. You're in your family for this reason. You're in your neighborhood for this reason. Jesus is inviting you to prepare the way for where he is about to go. Now, John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. Are you there? Wonderful. Here we go. Starting in verse 35. This is encounter number one. The next day, John was standing with, this is John who? John the... Baptist or baptizer, depending on your denominational affiliation, okay? Next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Raise your hand if this sounds familiar. Yeah, we read it last week. It turns out John has one message. His message is, I am not, he's the great I am, the Lamb of God. The two two disciples heard them say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. So first encounter John the Baptist's disciples ditch him to follow Jesus. 
This would not have been a popular move in the first century. It would have been shameful for a rabbi to be ditched in order to follow another rabbi. And John has no problem with it. Go, follow Jesus. Story number two. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found, everybody say found. That word is going to show up five times in the next few verses. If you have your little um, Gospel of John journal, I'd encourage you to circle it every time it comes up because found is a key theme when it comes to following Jesus. When he found his brother Simon, he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, We see that one of the disciples who was following John the Baptist, who left him to follow Jesus, his name was Andrew. We don't know who the other one is, but the first thing he does is he goes and finds his brother. See, the gospel starts traveling along relational lines from its very beginning. The most intimate relationships are often the first people who get to hear about transformation that's taking place inside of them. And I imagine Andrew came and said, we have found what we are seeking. We found the one we're looking for. Encounter number three. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And he found Philip. He found Philip. And he said to him, follow me. So the first disciples start following Jesus and he identifies them as followers. Now we see Jesus calling people to follow him. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now notice this idea of found is prevalent once again. Encounter number four. Now, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? (laughs) I'm glad you think that's funny. We'll talk about it more in just a moment. Philip said to him, come and see. So notice Jesus earlier said that the, who were gonna be his disciples, come and see. And now he says to others, come and see, come and see. They're using the exact same language. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. I guess Nathanael took Philip's advice and he went to see Jesus. Verse 48. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Four encounters each a bit different, but if we take them as a whole, they have these common threads that begin to weave together an evangelistic tapestry to answer the question, how did this thing that we call the movement of Jesus spread? But it all started with Jesus asking a question. What are you, what? 
what are you seeking? Now, if you go back and you read the first 37 verses of John, what you will find is that up until this point, Jesus has not said a word. These are the first recorded words that Jesus spoke in the gospel of John, which is fascinating. If the word became flesh and dwelt among us, if we didn't have an image of Jesus in our minds already, my guess is that we would expect God to come and make declarations. We would expect God to come and make statements. We would expect God maybe even to come and to make threats. If you don't, or you better. But what we see is that when God shows up in flesh, he asks questions? In fact, if you read through the Gospels, all four of them, cover to cover, you will find Jesus asking 339 different questions. (laughs) Which begs the question, (laughs) why? Did he not know the answers? I mean, he asked questions like, what do you think? Or what do you want me to do for you? Or do you really want to get well? Or why are you so afraid? See, questions, they have an ability, don't they, to to reach inside our soul and to sort of mess with us a little bit? Because they turn us from passive observers into active participants. They demand engagement. They cause us to think. They they maybe even create conversations or they, they build relationships. So Jesus is always asking questions. Here's one thing, if you just want to write something down, and maybe this is all you need today and you can leave right after this. I'm convinced that followers of Jesus need to get way better at asking questions than they are at giving answers. I think we need to get better at asking really good questions. I love the way that author Wynne Collier put it. He said, God's questions are always subversive. They reframe the discussion. They're always at work pulling us out of ourselves and drawing us into himself. What are you seeking? Think about how hard of a question that is to actually answer. Because so much of the time, our strongest desires are not our deepest desires. So much of the times, the thing that's like right on the surface of our soul and are the felt needs of our lives are not the things that we are most deeply longing for. So what are you seeking? Why are you here today? Are you seeking hope? Maybe healing? Significance? You seeking purpose? You seeking life? Are you seeking intimacy? What, What are you really seeking because your deepest desires may not be your strongest desires. I love the way that the disciples answered this question. They're like, we hear your question and we will respond with a question. Their question is, where are you staying? Which is just such a funny question to ask in regards to answering the question, what are you seeking? Where are you staying? And I think Jesus is like, let's just hit time out here because this could go on forever and ever and ever. But if you actually really get underneath this question, it very well may be the right question. Because I think what they're saying with this question is what we're seeking is what we just simply want to be where you are. Where where are you going? And we're going to follow you. 
What are you seeking? We, we just want to be close to you. We want to be near you. We want to we want to hear your voice. That's what we're seeking. See, they get it. Jesus is asking a question that he is ultimately the answer to. What are you seeking? We're seeking you. We're seeking you. And see, discipleship is an invitation to find what we are ultimately seeking in Jesus. How did this thing grow from a mustard seed in Jerusalem to all over the globe? Well, people have found what they're seeking in Jesus, and then they have gone to find others who are also seeking. But I think the question still remains, how does Jesus satisfy the ultimate longings in our soul? How does Jesus answer that question, what are you seeking, with his own presence and with himself? So glad you asked that. Because as we look at these four different encounters, I think there's going to be three threads that are present in almost all four of them that if we pull them together, we're going to see the way that Jesus satisfies our soul. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. It says the two disciples heard him say this and they, what? They followed him. Next we read in verse 43, jump there, jump down there. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to Philip, what? follow me. And when you hear Jesus using this phrase, follow me, it's an idiomatic phrase in the first century that would mean, come and be my disciple. Come and, come and learn from me. Come and learn my way. Come and learn my heart. Come and, come and obey. Come and take my yoke upon you. It's easy. It's light. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. Come and learn from me how to live. See, it's interesting because I think oftentimes we imagine that rabbis were teaching people how to be religious. Rabbis were not teachers of religion. They were teachers of life. If they were a college professor, they would be teaching the principles of living the abundant life, not just religion. And I'm, I'm just fascinated that Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, come and believe in me. Now, what we'll find next week is that belief is important. It's just not what he starts with. He says, come and what? Come and follow me. And inviting them to follow, he is beginning to satisfy the deepest needs in their soul. It's the call to come and to learn. So, so here's my encouragement to you, Manual Faith. Don't just believe in Jesus. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Because biblical salvation is about so much more than satisfying some minimum requirement to get into heaven when we die. It is a grace-empowered redemption of our whole lives, body, soul, mind, and spirit. Salvation is about life in quality and quantity eternally beginning now. Beginning now. Now, I think in order to understand this call to follow, we've got to do a little bit of history to understand the context of, of education in the Jewish first century life. How many of you love history? Oh, whoa, all right, awesome. I wasn't expecting that. My heart is strangely warmed, okay. 
So here's the way that education worked in the Jewish world. It was typically or only young boys that would have formal schooling. And the first school that they would go to was called Bet Sefer. Would you say that with me? Bet Sefer. And it means house or bet, house of the book or house of Torah. They would go and they would learn the first five books of the Bible. Most people wouldn't go on from here. Most young boys wouldn't reach that threshold where the rabbis would say, you can continue in school, but a few would. Those boys would go on to Bet Talmud. Would you say that with me? Bet Talmud, it means house of learning, house of learning. And it was during this phase that they would begin to memorize Genesis through Malachi. You heard that right. Memorize the entire, what we call Old Testament. And at this point, at the age of 14, there would be a few, very few boys who would have risen to be the cream of the crop and they would go on in school. The rest would go and apprentice under their father typically or their family business. So let's just hypothetically say if your parents were fishermen, if your dad was a fisherman, you would go be a fisherman. Or if you were from a family of carpenters, you would go be a carpenter. But you were getting in the family business because you had flunked out, might be too strong of a term, but you just hadn't made the cut to go on in school. Finally, we have Bet Midrash, which means the house of study. And this is where, if you were in school still, you would start to think, I might be able to become a rabbi someday. But in order to become a rabbi, I've got to go find a rabbi to apprentice under. I have to go become a rabbi's disciple. And so you would go up to a rabbi, probably with your knees trembling, and you would say, hi, my name's Ryan Paulson, and I've gone to Bet Sefer and Bet Talmud, and I'm in Bet Midrash now, and um, 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 I'm just wondering if I could be your disciple. And typically a rabbi, in very rabbinic terms, would tell you a riddle or ask you a question, and you'd have to answer. And if you answered correctly, they would say, you may be my disciple. My Talmudin, you can come and apprentice under me. So think of how much of this system Jesus is turning on its head. When he goes and doesn't wait for people to come ask if they can follow him, but he goes and he finds people like Philip and says to him, follow me. Flip the system. Where he goes and he finds young men who maybe didn't even make it past Bet Sefer. And he says, follow me. Now see, when a rabbi took a disciple underneath them, they would only take disciples underneath them who they believed could carry on their teaching, who they believed could take their yoke upon them, does that sound familiar? And then go and teach others. They were making a huge investment into these people. And so they wanted the cream of the crop. So catch this. When Jesus says to Philip, when he says to Nathaniel, when he says to Andrew, when he says to Peter, follow me, he's saying, I believe that you can become like me. When he says to you, like he has to everyone in this room, follow me. He's saying, I believe that you can become like me. He might even say something like, well, just come and follow me. Learn to live in my way with my heart. Now, I don't know about you, but there are days where transformation 
and becoming somebody different. The sanctifying work that God does in our lives where it seems like it's slow progress at best. Is anyone with me? Has anyone gotten to the point in life where they felt like, I'm never going to grow beyond this? Like, I'm never going to change. This is always going to be a part of my life. And you know what the beautiful part about this invitation from Jesus to follow me is? He disagrees with you. That because of the power of his spirit in your life, his empowering presence, he believes and knows that you can grow, that you can learn, that you can discover his way, that you can respond in obedience, and that you can change. It's possible. And so the call, follow me, it starts to address some of the deepest desires and longings of our heart and soul. It's learning a new way of living that actually leads us to abundance. Here's a second way we see Jesus satisfying. Verse 39. He says to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where Jesus was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Say these words with me, friends. Come and you will see. Come and see. We're going to see it again in verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. I love that come and see in this context is in direct answer to the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You're not going to believe it, but something did. Something good did come out of Nazareth. And I love that, um, that, that Andrew doesn't feel the need to defend Nazareth. He's not like, Nazareth's not all that bad. Have you been there in the spring? <laughs> Na- Nazareth, on a whole, needs a little help, but it's got some great pockets right? Just amazing. He doesn't, he doesn't defend Nazareth. He just simply says, like, Nathaniel, you've got your doubts. I get it. But, but my only invitation is just come and see for yourself. Come and check out this Jesus. And I wonder what it would look, back, look like for the church to get back to the simple invitation to people, come and see. Um, we live in a societal moment that, where um, apologetics, and apologetics are a phenomenal thing. I, I would encourage you, we have a great apologetics class. You should dive in and you should learn as much as you can. But I'm convinced that alongside the question of evidence that demands a verdict needs to be brought in Jesus who is able to be experienced. Like you really can experience his presence. You really can experience his love. So what would it look like for us to say to people who are struggling with sexuality and gender issues, come and see, come and see. What would it look like for us to say to people who have intellectual questions about the gospel, just like, just come and see, come and see. What would it look like to be, to to have conversations with people who've been turned off to Christianity because of the awkward dance between Christianity and politics. And we just said to them, you just gotta, you just gotta get with Jesus. You've got to come and see. What would it look like to say to people who are just riddled with fear and anxiety, gosh, we just want you to meet Jesus. Just come and see. We don't have the answers, all of them, but my goodness, we know the one who does. So just come and see. I am not. 
but he's the great I am. And see, here's the second way that Jesus satisfies the longings and desires of his disciples. He invites us to experience his love. Now, I want to unpack this for you. I'm going to try not to spend too much time doing it, but my heart exploded when I saw this this week. So I, I'm, in some ways, I'm just going to be like a pinata that just gets hit all over you. And sorry, not sorry, but I just love the way that what happened, that I started to see what happens to people when they come and see Jesus. Because it just, it wrecked me in the best possible way. So Andrew starts at home. He goes and he grabs his brother, Simon. And it says, he brought him to Jesus and Jesus, what? Looked at him. Just, I just stopped. Because I love that Jesus looks at us. I love that he doesn't look past us. I love that he sees us. I love that he sees our pain. I love that he sees our questions. I love that he sees our doubts. I love that he sees us for who we really are. And it struck me that when we come and see, the first thing that happens to us is we're seen. It's like this great plot twist. Like we came to see him and what happens is he sees us. And that's part of what changes the game. The deepest needs of our soul to be seen with no fig leaves, no pretense, no hiding, just us. You're seen. You're seen. All the struggles, all the pain, you are seen. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Oh, like Andrew brings his brother, Simon. Jesus looks at him. Jesus sees him and Jesus calls something out of him that's deep within him. Something that he placed there that had been buried, maybe through pain or disappointment or failure, where Peter never quite lived into the fact that he was actually Peter, the rock upon which Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church. See, when Jesus looks at Simon and says, you're no longer Simon, you are Cephas, it's like he's calling him Rocky. <laughs> I mean, it's a game changer. And when we come to Jesus, there's a sense of identity and transformation in his presence that starts to happen where the true us starts to come to the surface. Because when we come and see, we're named. We are named. And some of my favorite portions of scripture is when God renames people, where he calls Abram and says, you're no longer Abram, you're Abraham. His wife, Sarai, goes from Sarai to Sarah. We see Jacob, who goes from Jacob to Israel. We see Saul, who goes from Saul to Paul. We see Simon, who goes from Simon to Peter. And my question is, what might he be calling you today? What might he be unearthing? I started to wonder how Andrew, who brings his brother to Jesus, feels when Jesus looks at his brother and says, you're no longer Simon, you're Rocky. <laughs> if I'm Andrew, I'm like, oh, 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 do me next. <laughs> who, 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 who am, who am I, Jesus? And I just imagine Jesus looking at him and he's like, Andrew's like, eh. And Jesus is like, 
yeah, we're going to stick with Andrew. <laughs> it's like, what? I brought him to you, Andrew? And I just, I just love this. I love this because I think for some of us, he wants to come along and he wants to comfort and he wants to point out that who we are living into is who we really are. And then for some others, he wants to draw out something that's there that hasn't yet come on to the surface. But in both cases, we are seen and we are named. There's one other thing that happened. And it's when uh, Nathanael approached Jesus. It says this in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, Indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, this is the second time that Jesus sees somebody and just sees straight to the core of who they are. He declares his value. But there's a really interesting sort of rabbinic riddle that Jesus is telling here. So let me invite you into it. He calls Nathaniel an Israelite. Who was renamed Israel? Jacob. What does the name Jacob mean? Liar, deceiver. Ah. So Jesus sees an Israelite coming towards him. Nathaniel, who has all of these questions. What could come out of Nazareth, but is willing to step out of his doubt and out of his darkness and bring it all to Jesus to ask Jesus to answer the questions that reside in his soul? And Jesus looks at him and goes, oh, Nathaniel, you're actually willing to chase down these questions. You're, you're not going to live in your deception. You're going to try to find answers. And then Jesus, or Nathaniel, responds to him and says, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. I saw you. And here's the last thing that happens when we come and see. When we come and see, we're seen. When we come and see, we're named. When we come and see, we're known. We're known. And when you get down to it, friends, is there really anything else that you're seeking? To be seen, to be named, and to be known, and to be accepted as you are by the God of the universe. That is an experience of love. So what if, what if we got back to come and see? And what if we started with us? I mean, I've got, I, I've, I've just admit, I live so much of my life in my head and I've sensed, as I've studied this, Jesus inviting me once again, not just to know about him, but to know him, to actually come and see, to come and hear his voice, speak a better word over me, a word that says, I see you in the way you carry, I see you. And the way that you're trying, I see you, Ryan. And to say, uh, Jesus, would you, just, would you just name me? What do you see in me? Tell me. And then to be known and valued and accepted. Oh my goodness, you guys. Like that's so much better than knowing about. 
So what if we just received this invitation from Jesus today to come and see? And what if we believed that when we came and saw, we would actually experience an encounter? And then if as, a, as Jesus followers, as a church, what if we said, listen, our main desire, our main goal is not to convince anyone. It's just to bring people to the feet of Jesus, believing that if they encounter Jesus, they will be changed. That's what our founding followers did. You're never going to believe what happened. You've got to come and see. Can anything come, good come out of Nazareth? Just come and see. Come and see. And it turns out for Nathaniel that being known, I saw you, wasn't all that Jesus wanted him to experience. Look at the way it goes on. Verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? I'm like, that's all it took, Nathanael? Right on. But don't be satisfied with that. Don't stop there, Nathanael. You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And I just love that come and see ends with Nathaniel declaring that Jesus is the son of God and the king of Israel. But even that isn't where Jesus wants the conversation to stop. He doesn't want to leave him with just belief because discipleship is about having our deepest desires satisfied in him, not just in believing. And our deepest desire is not just to believe, it's to be with. And so, Jesus, in a very enigmatic way, promises Nathaniel and his followers this powerful presence. It's the third thing that satisfies the deepest longings of our soul. Now, he does this in a way where he, it's, it's actually um, just brilliant what Jesus does. Because he has already called Nathaniel what? Israel, an Israelite whom there is no deceit in. You're not like Jacob. And then he references a story that has to do with, guess, Jacob, Jacob. The whole angels and descending deal, that's a story about Jacob. Jacob is on the run from his brother. He's in the middle of the wilderness. He uses a rock for a pillow. And while he's sleeping, he has a dream. Listen to it. He dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth and to the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. It's quite the dream. Jacob wakes up from his dream and he tells us, what he interprets the dream to mean. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. God, I was just running from my family and my brother and in the middle of nowhere, here you are. I had no idea, but you are here. And he said he was afraid. And he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. There's this stairway to heaven, which, by the way, would make for a great song. And 
angels ascending, descending, and Jacob goes, oh, sure, God, you are, you are here. This is your house. The whole thing is your house. This is the gate of heaven. God, you've come to me. You've visited me. And so I love that Jesus isn't negative about Nathaniel's doubts, about the experience that he has, about this clairvoyant miracle that leads him to believe. But he goes, I just don't want to leave you there. He wants to lead him to the place where he can more fully recognize who Jesus is. And so what he says to Nathaniel in a very sort of riddle type of way is, in me, you will find heaven and earth connected. He says to Nathaniel, I am the new house of God. I am the new stairway to heaven. I am the gate of heaven. I am the way that God is in this place. Nathaniel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus, this same Jesus, walks among us today. Surely, God is in this place. You may not have known it when you walked in. My hope is that you have no doubt about that when you walk out. He is calling your name. So how in the world does a movement of an itinerant, homeless, Jewish rabbi who never wrote a book or walked past a hundred miles of his home in his adult life? Where, how does that movement grow to be on all corners of the globe? Well, for 2,000 years, his disciples have been finding the deepest longings of their soul met in him. They've responded to his invitation to follow and learn, and they've been transformed. They've responded to this call, come and see, and they've experienced love, being seen, being named, being known. And then they have gone out with this conviction that the gate of heaven, the house of God, the one on whom the angels ascend and descend, his name is Jesus, and he is with us. And they have gone out for roughly 2,000 years because when you find what you're looking for, you get to find others who are looking. And when you find what you're looking for, you get to partner with Jesus as he, the hound of heaven, approaches people and pursues people and loves people. And when you find what you are looking for, sometimes, just sometimes, all you feel like you need to say is, I don't need to defend, I don't need to convince. Just come and see. Come and see. Come and see the one who sees you, who names you, and who knows you. Come and see. I assure you, friends, that one, two, buckle my shoe, three, four, shut the door. I assure you, within the next few weeks, it'll be gone. But I promise you that the name and fame of Jesus, 
the word, the light, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, Rabbi, Messiah, King, the Son of Man. He will be praised throughout all of eternity. So what does it look like to get in the wake, amen, of, of our founding followers and say, we want to point to him with everything we have. We want to follow him in obedience. We want to experience his love. And then we want to go carrying his presence into the world. If you have found what you're looking for in him, then my invitation to you is now you get to find others who are looking and you get to say, come and see come and see, come and see. So Lord, we pray. We pray that that truth would sink deep within our hearts. And that as we respond to you, we would see you move in power. As we experience your love, we'd have more and more confidence that others can experience it too. They don't need us to convince them, but simply invite them. And Lord, as we do that, we pray that we would see a viral movement of your gospel here in Escondido, North County, and to the ends of the earth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I invite you to put your things away, friends, and we get the chance to go to the communion table today. If you need communion elements, I'm going to invite you to just raise your hand in our Ushers would be happy to bring you some. Wonderful. Got a few up top here. A few over here. The table is open to all who are followers of Jesus. If that's you, I'd invite you to celebrate, participate today. If it's not you, I would just invite you to spend this time just thinking about what you've heard today. But if it's not you, I I want you to know that responding to the invitation that Jesus is giving to you is really simple. He's saying to you, follow me. And in order to do that, you simply need to say, Jesus, I wanna follow you. So I'm repenting, I'm turning from where I've been walking before. And now I wanna get behind you. I wanna learn your way. I wanna learn your heart. Would you forgive my sin? Would you send your spirit to live within me? And would you be my leader and my Lord? I want to follow you. And Jesus says, if if you make that decision, if you say that to him, he says back to you, I see you, I know you, I love you, you're my child. Live in my way, empowered by my spirit. And if that's you, we get the chance to celebrate our Lord and Savior today. His name is Jesus. Let me just give you a moment to quiet your heart. Take a deep breath. If there's anything you need to confess, I encourage you to confess. Anybody you need to make things right with, I encourage you to, as much as it depends on you, to do that. Jesus, we pray that in this moment, you would meet us in a very real way. Minister to our hearts, we pray. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. Let's participate together. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. And he looked at his apostles and he said, this cup is the new covenant, which is made in my blood. It's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of mercy. It's a covenant where God says, I have done everything needed for you to have relationship with me. The new covenant, which is made in my blood, Jesus said. And as long as you do this, you proclaim my death until I come again. Let's remember and proclaim today, friends. Jesus, we've come and seen, we've tasted that you are good. We know that we are seen, that we're known, that we're named, and we will never be the same. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for calling us your own. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.